Well, the setting is first century Palestine. Christianity is young. It's been around for about three decades or so, and in the mid-60s, late 60s, Christianity is facing serious challenges. Israel is under Roman rule and uh, is ruled by the Caesar, and this particular Caesar at this time was Nero, and he was in particular brutal and violent towards this new sect of believers known as Christians. It's rumored that Nero had um, a practice of taking Christians, dipping them in oil, and then lighting them on fire in his garden at night. Christianity was young, it had been spreading, yet suddenly it faces intense opposition, intense persecution, and the people who have claimed Jesus to be their Lord are suddenly left wondering, God, what is going on? Have you abandoned us? Is this what we signed up for? And it's likely in the midst of that context, that setting, that Mark takes his quill and he begins to put words to page and writes about Jesus. And from that today, we have what we call Mark's gospel, a book about Jesus from Mark's perspective. And he would have been writing to Christians about that time. We've been, we've been in this gospel for the last six weeks or so, um, and, and so today we kind of come to the halfway point of Mark's gospel. We're going to be in it for about another six weeks, and we actually are in the halfway point of the book. But more significantly than that, more, more important than the fact that we're halfway through the book is we, we really we come to a turning point in Mark's gospel. And, and what we see in the passage we're going to look at today in Mark 8 is the heart of who Jesus is and why he came, and everything in Mark hinges on this. We've been, we've been talking about how Mark has painted Jesus as the greatest of all time, and up to this point, we've seen how Mark has shown Jesus to be the ultimate authority, the, the ultimate uh, power. He is king, and he's been backing up his claims to this with miracles through his teaching and, and through the different things that he has done. But at this point, Mark's gospel takes a shift and from this moment on, it points to the cross. Jesus has a singular focus at this moment, and, and from, from there, we see exactly why he came. There's, there's no deterring him from his mission, and so we find ourselves at a pivotal point in the gospel of Mark today. So turn to Mark 8 with me, if you will. My name is Ryan, by the way. Um, I'm on the uh, pastoral team here at Outward. And I'm um, glad that you're here with us. But um, we, are, we are, like I said, in Mark's gospel, we're in chapter 8. And uh, let's read together this entire passage, and then we'll, we'll, we'll go back and we'll kind of break it down. We're going to be in verse 27, and we're going to read all the way through to the end of the chapter. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? 
Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Today we're going to look at the greatest question of all time. We see it when Jesus posed it to his disciples, and we see how it resonates from the pages of Scripture down through history and comes to us today. And so we're going to wrestle with this question of who do we say Jesus is? Let's, uh, let's go back to where we started, and we'll kind of uh, walk our way through this passage. Verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now, Caesarea Philippi was an area, it was kind of a district uh, in, in northern Israel, and, and this particular location would have held uh, painful associations or painful memories for the Jews, and in particular for the disciples who were with Jesus at this time. It had been a site of one of the Jewish revolts or the uprisings trying to overthrow the Roman government, and it failed. And, and so at, at Caesarea Philippi, Herod the Great actually set up a temple, established a temple dedicated to Caesar Augustus. And so as Jesus and his disciples are walking along, they're literally in the shadow of this symbol of the oppression that they're living under. And it's in that context, in that place, that Jesus chooses to engage with his disciples in conversation and ask them this question. Now, typically, when you, when you have a rabbi and his disciples, the disciples would be asking questions of the rabbi. They're there to learn from him. But Jesus turns at this time and he says, who do you say I am? And... and uh, there's no shortage of opinion about who Jesus was in that day, as we see in verse 28. It says, they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. We looked last week at Jesus and some of the, the crowd, how they followed him around. He had kind of become a rock star at this point, you know, due to his miracles that he'd done and his teaching, you know, he taught unlike anyone they had heard before. And, and so there was a lot of intrigue when it came to Jesus. And the disciples were aware of that. They, they knew that there was a diversity of opinion of what people thought about Jesus. And, and you, know, you kind of see the list here. John the Baptist, had, in a couple chapters back, he had been beheaded by Herod. And so there was kind of a rumor circulating that Jesus was John come back from the dead, right? 
uh, Elijah is another kind of famous prophet in Israelite history. And, and Scripture tells us that Elijah never actually died, that, that God took him up to heaven bodily. And so there's a lot of mystery around Elijah and was he going to come back someday? What was he going to do? And, and so there was some, some thought that Jesus may have been a reincarnation of Elijah or Elijah himself. Um, and, and some other prophets that kind of held some, some uh, interest for, for Jews at that time. So there was no shortage of opinion when it comes to Jesus not unlike today. You can do a quick Google search, which I did, um, to try to find what are people's opinions about Jesus. And, and uh, you could spend a lot of time doing this. I, I pulled just a few just to kind of highlight. Um, so uh, these are some names that, that you'll recognize. Uh, John Lennon once said, I believe in God, but not as one thing, not as an old man in the sky. I believe that what people call God is something in all of us. I believe that what Jesus, Muhammad, and Buddha, and all the rest said was right. It's just that the translations have gone wrong. Oprah Winfrey is famous for saying that she believes that Jesus came to show us Christ consciousness, whatever that is. Uh, Woody Harrelson, the actor, said, I have a strong spiritual life. I can't say that I have faith that Jesus is my Savior, but I look at Jesus in the same way that I look at, you know, Muhammad. He was giving everyone the goods. So was Gandhi. Mike Tyson once said, I'm a Muslim, but I think Jesus would have a drink with me. He'd be cool. He would talk to me. And uh, Gorbachev said, Jesus was the first socialist, the first to seek a better life for mankind. There's no shortage of opinion, confusion, of questioning about who Jesus is. There are many, many answers to this question, and, and the disciples understood that as well. They knew that there was some mystery surrounding who he was and what he had come to do, and so they relate this to Jesus, um, and then Jesus turns it and makes it personal, right? Verse 29, he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This is a big moment in the Bible. Up to this point in Mark's gospel, no one has correctly identified, no person has correctly identified who Jesus actually is. God himself has said it, demons have even said it, but no person up to this point has accurately said, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah come to save us. And so Peter gets it right, and we see in Matthew that, that Jesus affirms his statement. He says, blessed are you, Peter, because flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed it to you, and on this rock I will build my church. So Jesus says, yes, you got it. And what Peter does here is significant because he's not merely making an observation or repeating judgments that other people have made about who Jesus is, but he's confessing it for himself, which is a much more difficult thing to do. It's one thing for us to say, I know that such and such says that this is who Jesus is, or I knew this person and they believed this about Jesus, but when it comes to who do I say Jesus is, it's personal. And, and when it's personal, it's, we become vulnerable, right? 
when I was 10 years old, I, I grew up in, in Garden City, Kansas, and uh, I was a son of a, a pastor. My dad uh, pastored a church there, and so I had godly parents raised me to love Jesus. I, I always knew growing up who Jesus was, what he had done for me, and, and so when I was 10 years old, I came to a realization, the Holy Spirit awakened this realization in me that my faith was not something that could come from anyone else. Like I said, I had parents who loved me and they taught me about Jesus, but I realized, young as I was and, and as much as there was that I didn't still understand, I knew and I understood that following Jesus was something that I had to decide to do. And so at 10 years old, I was baptized, and, and I remember, you know, in, in that moment, it was a long time ago, but I remember in that moment, the, the vulnerability that comes when you make this decision to follow Jesus, because you're not just repeating what someone else has said, you're actually claiming, and to the point where you're willing to go under the water, right? This is a, this is a public step. You're saying, I am choosing Jesus I'm saying he's Lord, and I want to follow him the rest of my life. I think it's that, that vulnerability that is the reason why there are statistics that say um, that 80, about 85% of people who, who come to Christ, who, who choose to follow Jesus, they do so between the ages of 4 and 14. After that point the likelihood that someone will choose to follow Jesus, choose to become a Christian, drops to about 6%. Why is that? I think that a lot of it has to do with when it comes to confessing who Jesus is, we realize this is something that I have to be completely vulnerable in. And as we, as we hit high school, as we kind of grow into adulthood, we get really good at putting walls up around our vulnerability. We, we get really good at deflecting when things start to become too personal. And, and so I feel that that is probably why it is so difficult for adults, people who have moved past this kind of this, this younger age where, where it's not such a scary thing, to, to bank their life on who Jesus is. Peter does this, and Jesus affirms it, yet... While he had the title of Messiah right, we see that Jesus quickly explains to him that his understanding of Messiah is way off. Verse 31, and he and Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Have you ever had an experience where you expect something to go one way, and then it kind of doesn't go that way? To illustrate this, I've got a, a quick video clip that we're going to show, so go ahead and just check this out real fast. Welcome. I, I think we need to see that one more time. Jerry, can we, can we see that one more time? 
This is what happens when your teaching pastor goes away for six weeks on sabbatical. Um, you have an expectation that something's going to go a certain way. You hear the drums, you see the logo, and then suddenly you realize something has gone very, very wrong, and you say, no, <laughs> make it stop. That's what happens to Peter right here, right? Peter says, you are the Christ. He opens himself up to be vulnerable and says, Jesus, on behalf of the disciples here, I'm going to step up. I'm going to be the only one who speaks out and says, I claim that you are the Messiah. And then Jesus starts telling him something. And Peter says, hang on a second. This is not what I meant. Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And he said this plainly. Peter realizes that Jesus is not talking in a parable here. The, the Greek word there for plainly means boldly or with confidence. Jesus is telling them explicitly what is going to happen to him, and Peter is having none of it. He says, this is not who we expected this is not what Messiah is because you see in that day, the understanding of Messiah, there, there was some, there was some um, not, not a complete construct of what this term really looked like exactly, but one thing was clear is that the Messiah to the Jews was never in any sense connected to the idea of suffering. The Messiah was someone who would come powerfully, who, who would conquer, who would rule. And all these things are true of Jesus, but what Jesus is showing Peter is they're not in the sense that they expected. There was an idea of the suffering servant from Isaiah, and so there was this understanding that this person would come too, but there was never a correlation between the two. And so Jesus is shifting their whole paradigm right here, and to the point where Peter rebukes him using the same phrase that Jesus uses when he rebukes demons in people. Peter steps up in an authoritative way to Jesus and says, no. And Peter returns the rebuke and says, get behind me, Satan. Seems a little bit harsh, doesn't it? But why, would, why would Jesus call Peter Satan. It's, it's, it's a parallel of the same phrase Jesus uses back in Matthew 4 when Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness. In his final temptation, Satan says to Jesus, just simply bow down to me and all the kingdoms of this world will be yours. And what is being tempted there is a complete um, turning on its head of why Jesus came. And, and in this moment with Peter, Jesus realized that Satan is tempting him again in the same way. Satan knows why Jesus has come, and he's trying to disrupt that. And so Jesus rebukes Peter, saying, Satan is working through you in this moment to try to tempt me, and so I'm saying, get behind me. Did you catch what he says in verse 33? You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter understood the Messiah to be someone who would free them from Roman oppression. That's man's view. God's view 
looked very different. God's view says, I'm going to come as a suffering king, as a sacrificial hero in a lot of ways, and I'm going to give you life. Ralph Martin is quoted as saying, for Peter, the indication that the Son of Man will die is unthinkable. For Jesus, it is inevitable. What, what Peter is in opposition to here is the very essence of why Jesus came. Jesus says, you're right, I'm the Messiah, but I'm not the Messiah you expected. In just a couple chapters, we see Jesus say in, in chapter 10, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What, what does this mean? What, why why? Does Jesus say that he must suffer? Why is this a necessity? We all owe a debt to God. It's a debt of sin that we're born into, that uh, every one of us is equally guilty. In, uh, in Romans 1, I'm going to turn to it here. Uh, Romans 1 or uh, three, rather. Verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We are all in this together in that our debt to God is something that we cannot repay. Uh, To help understand, uh, a few weeks ago, my uh, family and I, we drove out to the coast. Uh, we decided to take a day uh, out in Lincoln City, so we spent a couple hours on the beach, ate at Moe's, did the, did the Moe's thing, and then we were driving home. And uh, there's, there's an area of Lincoln City where you it, it kind of, you're still in town, but it doesn't really feel like you're in town. The road kind of dips down. There's a big hill. And, and so we're, we're going. I'm, I'm driving along, and, and all of a sudden I see flashing lights in my rearview mirror. Pull over. I have a conversation with Lincoln City's finest, and uh, I drive away with with a yellow piece of paper that lets me know that I have incurred a debt, and I was responsible to pay this debt. Now, anyone could pay that debt for me, right? The the, the nice police officer who I talked to, she could have offered to pay that for me. She didn't. Um, but she could have, right? When I got home, I could have, I could have called up some friends and said, hey, I, uh, I got a ticket. Would you pay that for me? I could have done that, right? But the bottom line is the debt had to be paid, and so $160 later, I feel the weight of my debt that I incurred. Think of it another way. If, if someone comes to your house, they come to your apartment, uh, they, they knock over a lamp in your living room, it shatters on the ground, it's, it's a nice lamp. And you have two options, basically. You can respond to them. You can say, sorry about that, man. Can I have my 100 bucks? <laughs> that's one option. Um, the second option would be to say, that's okay, I forgive you. Now, in that scenario, though, that debt still has to be paid, right? What that means is you are assuming the responsibility for the $100 to fix the lamp, or you're going to learn how to live in darkness. Either way, you absorb the cost of what happened, right? 
And when we come to God, when we, when we look at God's economy, we realize we are all sinful. We all have a debt that we can't pay. And so what Jesus does is he comes and he suffers our debt. Tim Keller puts it this way. The only way God can pardon us and not judge us is to go to the cross and absorb it into himself. Ephesians 5.2 says, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So we see Jesus describing what the implications for him are as Messiah. And then he goes on and he begins to describe the implications of what it looks like to follow him when we claim him as Messiah. Picking up in verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus says, if anyone comes after me, you must take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. What does it look like to take up our cross? I don't know if you've heard people use this phrase before. You know, I hear people from time to time saying like, oh, it's just my cross to bear. And they're like talking about their mother-in-law or something. I think we've missed the, the imagery here when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. When, when Jesus would have said that, the image that would have been conjured up in the minds of his listeners was not anything pleasant or light, right? The cross was, was an instrument of execution by the Romans as, as a symbol of their authority in that part of the world, right? They say, if you, you try to come against us, this is the way we're going to punish you, and it was brutal, it was embarrassing, there was nothing glorious about death on a cross, yet here Jesus is saying, take up your cross. They might have expected him to say, take up your sword and follow me, right? They probably could have gotten behind that, right? Here's, here's the revolutionary leader that we were looking for. This is the guy that's going to stamp out Rome, and we're going to join on board with his mission. But instead, Jesus uses an illustration of how he is going to die and the, the extent to that we will suffer loss on account of him. R.C. Sproul puts it this way. He says, if we would be followers of Jesus, we must embrace his suffering, his rejection, his death, and his cross, because that is what it costs to stand with him. Jesus is saying, if you if you're going to answer the question, who do you say I am? In the right way, you are the Christ, you are Messiah. Then he is telling the disciples, he's telling his followers, and he tells us, then consider the cost. Are you ready for what that actually means? Because when, when we say that, that 
As it says in John 14, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. When we claim that, the world hates us for that. They have no tolerance for that. It doesn't make sense. And so we had better be prepared to suffer loss because it's going to come. We have to know what we're signing up for. So when we look at this passage, when we look at all of what Jesus says and teaches here, what what do we gain from it? What are the implications for us today? Go back to mid-first century A.D., when the original recipients of Mark's gospel would have received this book, it would have intense meaning for them. Because as, as they would have read the words of Jesus here, they would have said, they would have been reminded of the, the, their suffering was not an indication that God had abandoned them. Their suffering was an indication of their identity in Christ and their faithfulness to him in that. They would take heart as they read this because they would see that the Jesus they claim, the Messiah that they are following, went to the cross. He suffered all the way to death and conquered, and in that, even as they're suffering, no matter how bad it got, they know that the one that they're following overcame, and so in that they would overcome as well. In the same way for those of us today here who have answered the question, who do you say I am? If we have answered that and we've said, you are the Christ, just as Peter did, there are some things that we must examine of ourselves we've got to ask ourselves, where is my heart? We sang that song just a minute ago, here's my heart, Lord, speak what is true. Where is our heart really? What, what things do we hold most dear? Um, what are the things that concern us the most? Are we preoccupied with, with things that are of this world, or are we preoccupied with the things of God? And here's, here's what we do a lot of times. We say, okay, Jesus, I'm going to make you number one. And so we say, I've got my hierarchy here, and I'm going to set Jesus up on top of the list, right? And we do this with good intentions, but here's inevitably what happens. The, the minute you say, Jesus, you're going to be number one, we are identifying that there is a number two. And whatever that number two is, whether it be our family um, our job or our job security, maybe it's financial stability, maybe for some of us it's, it's uh, things in culture, like even like a religious freedom, issues like that, right? Whatever this number two thing is, inevitably there are going to be times in life where it starts to creep, and then we start to see a little bit of this going on, right? We kind of see a, a competition taking place for the top spot. And Jesus says, I'm not just calling you to give a little bit more of your time, a little bit more effort, a little bit more of your energy and money to me than to these other things. He's saying, I want it all. I went to the cross and I gave everything for you and that's what I'm asking in return. And so are we looking at everything in our life through that lens of who Jesus is? 
What has he done for us? And that then informs the way we view everything else. Because the reality is, as, as Jesus says here, there are going to be times when things that we hold dear are going to be taken from us, that are going to be lost. There's going to be times when, when uh, people are going to come against us, they're going to speak hateful things about us, they're going to be um, suffering in that sense. And, and what's our response going to be in these moments? Right? Is, is our response going to be what it says in James 1? Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Or is our response going to be to fight back, to, to, to push back for our rights? Right? Or, or do we have an understanding of what it means to take up our cross and follow we have our Bible. We're sitting here today because 2,000 years ago, those first century Christians received Mark's words and they said, we can do this because we have Messiah and we are choosing joyfully to take up our cross to suffer with Jesus and endure. And so we carry on that legacy today. And for those of you who have not answered the question, who do you say I am? And I'll, I'll close with this. Or, or perhaps you've, you've chosen to answer it, uh, but you've, you've answered it in, um, by saying other. You know, not Messiah, but something else. Consider this today with me. Answering who Jesus is really is the greatest question any of us will ever face. It, it affects our entire outlook on life. Think about this. Um, all the big questions that you face in life, who am I going to marry? Or am I going to get married, right? Um, where, where am I going to live? What kind of job, what kind of career am I going to take? Uh, any number of big questions. Can the answer to any one of those questions offer you your soul, your very soul? Because that's what Jesus does. Right? He says, wager your life on me, right? In, in verse uh, 36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Jesus says, wager your life on me. I promise I won't let you down. He says, I may not lead you into the life that you expected necessarily, but I am the only one who can truly give you the life that you need. There's a debt that we all must pay. Romans 6 says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Jesus offers to pay your But it all comes down to how you answer the question, who do you say he is? Because there's going to come a point in every one of our lives where we must answer this question, where we must find ourselves in this place of vulnerability saying, who do I say Jesus is? If not in this life, it will come when you die, and at that point it will be too late 
And so I, I ask you, what is holding you back today from answering this question? And, and here's, here's the thing. I can't answer it for you. The person you're sitting next to can't answer it for you. I answered the question for myself when I was 10, and by God's grace, I've continued to answer it day after day after day. But I can't answer it for my kids, much as I would love to. I, I didn't answer it for my wife. I can't answer it for any of you. So I ask you today, who do you say Jesus is? Would you bow your heads with me? I just want to encourage all of us here today, no matter where we're at in life, no matter um, what we think about Jesus, I, I encourage you, take a moment right now and be vulnerable with God. No, no one around is paying attention right now. Just, just close your eyes. I'm not, I'm not watching. I'm not, I, don't, I don't care. I do care. Um, but be vulnerable with God for a moment. And answer the question, who do you say Jesus is? Is he who he says he is? The Christ, our Savior, the one who paid our debt? Or is he, or is he uh, something other? Is he a good teacher? Is he a, a good moral example? Is he, is he uh, a lunatic? How do you answer the question? And I invite you, if, if you feel the Holy Spirit right now, if you feel a tug, perhaps that is God calling you to say, just try me. Try me and see. And, and this could be the day. This could be the day that you say, Jesus I'm claiming that you are Lord. No one, is, no one is saying you have to have everything figured out. No one is saying you have to have your life together in order to do this. But you just have to openly and honestly say to him, that's who you are. You're the Christ. I want you to be Lord of my life. If you, if you feel that tug today, if, if you're ready to be vulnerable with God. I would love to meet with you. I'll be in the back. For all of us this morning, may we be prepared to consider the cost to, to take our cross and deny ourselves as we follow him. Jesus, we, we don't claim um, that this is an easy teaching, but we do claim that it is the best teaching. May our love for you flow from, from the Holy Spirit wickedness, revealing to us who you are. And, and may we be able to say with confidence, with great joy, that you are the Christ and all that comes with it. Work in us, continue to erode away the walls that we put up so we can get to that place of, of just us and you and being able to answer this question honestly. It's your name we pray, amen.